Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and as always, it is my privilege to be your host for this edition of the Speaking for Him podcast. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I hope that you will find some encouragement for this journey that we call the Christian life. We're in this together, and we are told to exhort one another and provoke each other unto good works, and so much more as you see the day approaching, and that has been my privilege over the last almost decade here on the Speaking for Him podcast. We're three weeks away from our 10th anniversary show, so please make sure that you reach out with any comments or input that you would like to have on that special episode. I'm super excited that my original co-host, Adam McNutt, will be with us, and it's just going to be really great to reflect back on 10 years of broadcasting. It's been really exciting for me to dig into the vault of speaking for him and to bring you some of my favorite podcast memories via highlights and today is no exception. I'm going to feature a clip from my friend Denise Dykstra who has a blog Four Boys Coffee Please and she was featured on my podcast a few years ago um, in regards to Mother's Day and her decision to do what was best for her family, so you'll want to stay tuned for that clip. The main topic of our show today is actually about the new movie put out by the Kendrick Brothers and Kirk Cameron called Life Mark. Now, this is a unique movie in the Kendrick universe for several reasons. Um, First of all, it is a true story, and they've never tackled a true story before. Uh, Second of all, They're working directly with Kirk Cameron as a producer as well as an actor. So kind of going back to the fireproof era. And then thirdly, this is the first Kendrick Brothers movie where the Kendrick Brothers do not direct. They actually pass that on. And I will discuss why they did that a little bit more as we get into the review. But first, let's talk about what is going on. For the first story of the day, let's go to New England and see what's up in the state of Connecticut. A public school teacher handing out a woke worksheet to students defining terms like white privilege and social justice, the move drawing swift backlash from parents, and even the school board calling the worksheet troubling, adding that it was never brought to their attention. Joseph Pashevsky, vice chairperson with the Southington School Board, joins me now. Joseph, thanks for being here. What was your reaction when you first saw this worksheet? Um, but to be honest, Todd, I was actually very surprised. Um, we we're not, we weren't even in, in the first week of school at this point, and um, you know this this was being passed out to students in one particular class. Worksheet also stating, "quote Racism is a st- systemic issue. If you look the other way or deny that these systems exist, you are part of the problem." You know, look, Joseph. Oftentimes in these situations, school board circles the wagons, kind of delays, doesn't necessarily give an answer. But you've come out against this extremely publicly. How shocked were you in the first place that this this was in Southington, Connecticut, of all places, Middle America? Um, again, I'm a product of Southington, um, so we're a very patriotic town. Um, we teach patriotism in this town, uh, being a good citizen. And to be honest, I was I was pretty surprised. Um, 
at this. And again, it's not part of our curriculum. So this is a, a teacher bringing it upon themselves to, to pass this up to students. What's been the reaction of parents? Um, certainly mixed. Um, I, I, one of the most impressive takes on, on this whole matter was a uh, the mother of the young lady who brought this to the administration um, attention. And uh, it was dealt with very swiftly. I think it showed her that the system that we have works. Um, it was brought to our attention. It wasn't supposed to be there. Um, we've, we've essentially handled it now, and now we're going to be watching for it and making sure that this doesn't become more of an issue. You mentioned the reaction has been mixed, implying that there were some people that were in favor of this. I mean, look, Connecticut, as we all know, very liberal state. A lot of Democrats live in Southington. It's even though it's somewhat of a Republican town, a lot of Democrats obviously do live there because it is Connecticut. What are the people who are for this vocabulary list saying? I mean, again, you have to remember, Todd, that this is this is theory, right? And going back to college and philosophy and everything else, uh, you know, again, th- does this belong in tenth grade English? Uh, no, um, but you know, at the end of the day, people will be exposed to it at some point in their whether it's their career, whether it's going to a higher level of learning. Um, you know, again, there's there's people that are. They don't subscribe to the fact that based on the color of your skin that you have, you're more inherently likely to be successful. Um, to, to that, I say that's absolutely preposterous. Bigger picture here. At this point, do parents need to review every single piece of paper that comes across their kid's desk going forward? Honestly, Todd, I've, I've said this from the beginning of being on the board. The most important teacher in a child's life, good, bad, or indifferent, is the parent and the family. And... Um, it is your responsibility as a parent, um, just like I do with my 12-year-old and 10-year-old, is to unpack what's thought and to help them understand and think critically and ask the right questions. Again, it's, it's absolutely, positively the most important thing a parent can do, especially nowadays. Still don't understand why certain teachers feel like they're entitled to inject their agenda when literally they are paid by the taxpayer to teach the basics, to get these children prepared for the next level. We've seen it in Southington. We've seen it throughout the country. Joseph, thank you for being here, letting us know about how you're handling it in the great town of Southington, Connecticut. There are two things that I want to bring out from this story. First of all is the aspect that if you listen closely, you will... Recall that in this story, he read from the worksheet and he read the definition of systemic racism and he basically said, if you go this way, then you are racist and you are part of the problem. So my first issue is that if you're going to issue a worksheet with these terms, it should be with the objective of discussing the terms and having a back and forth about these terms because I think it's naive to put our heads in the sand and not talk about these issues, but there needs to be give and take and you need to be able to learn to articulate your view and why you believe a certain thing. But basically the biggest problem with this worksheet, apart from the fact that the teacher did it without the approval of the school district was the fact that the the worksheet came in with conclusions. It was not designed so that the student 
would come to conclusions. It was designed with the conclusions built in, and it was designed to forcibly persuade the students to come to the same conclusion as the teacher because it basically said, if you don't come to the same conclusions that this sheet comes to, you are less than. And that is unacceptable. The second thing I want to mention is that this teacher said what I have said for the last 10 years on the Speaking for Him podcast, which is regardless of how you choose to educate your children, parents are the number one and most important teachers of their kids. I think if we are going to see a revival in the society, that is what we need to get back almost more than anything else, is to realize that when the Bible says, train up your children in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it, it is not messing around. And so regardless of whether you choose to homeschool your children, which I think is an awesome option, I think more people should homeschool, or whether you send your children to Christian school, or whether you send your children to public school, this fact remains, that you, as the parent, and not the teacher, are the most responsible for the education of your children. And I wish more people would realize and acknowledge that. The next thing I want to discuss is cancel culture Uh, because it's been on our radar for a while now, and I know I've discussed it, but I want to play for you a clip from a podcast that I recently discovered because my friend Kevin McCreary was on it, and he was talking about Christian cringe, the fact that often Christian movies are less than well done, and they tend to put message over quality. And while I don't completely disagree with him, I did want to comment on one thing he said, and this is from the Fantastical Truth podcast from Lorehaven, and I thought it was a very interesting discussion, and I've only listened to the one episode, so I can't, like, extremely recommend it, but I thought it was interesting, but this clip is Kevin talking about how Christians originated cancel culture. Send a message to Hollywood. Get the word out there. It's just too important. And when you have that kind of importance, you know, like the like every Oscar-nominated movie, where it's like, this oh, yeah. is important, and it's their right. time, and all of these things, it, it makes it's it a little bit hard to like. movies is activism. Yeah, yes. well, we, well, we recognize that as evangelicals. We, we see, oh, this is an important topic. You must see the movie. And now they're doing it over in the secular side. So apparently, at least uh, yeah. evangelicals are ahead <laughs> in at least one yes, regard and the others are catching up. War. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we started, we started the, uh, uh, the cringe. You know, you must see yeah. this movie because you need to know that God's not dead or you need to accept Christ as your personal savior. Uh, and now the world. Yeah, we, it, also, is doing Christians very started cancel culture. We were canceling Procter and Gamble and Disney in the night. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And now we've learned our lesson and everybody else is catching up to our leftovers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. So here's what I want to key in on. Kevin said that we as Christians started cancel culture. And I remember back in the 90s when Focus on the Family and organizations like them would call for boycotts. Of certain things. I remember particularly that people started boycotting Disney in the 90s because of some of the moral stands and decisions that they made. I remember other certain product boycotts because of 
moral stands that companies had made clear. And I'm not opposed to them. But I do think that they are different from cancel culture today. Because cancel culture today, largely from the left, is if you do something that is against my morals, I will call for you to lose your job. And even if you apologize, I will find something else to be offended about on your behalf. And there really is no way for you to get back into my good graces. That is modern cancel culture. The cancel culture, if you want to call it that, of the 90s, where Christian organizations and churches were saying you should boycott these companies, was for the express purpose of telling these companies, we don't like what you're doing, we would like you to change your practices, and if you change your practices, you can win us back. Because there were times when people had liberal policies as companies and they retracted those policies. They toned them down at the very least and then people would go back to those companies. So to my knowledge, the Christian cancel culture, if you want to call it that, never said we want to put these businesses out of business. They simply said we are not going to support them as long as they do X, Y, or Z. And so I think that is different because one of the problems with the culture that we have today is that you do something that's perceived offensive and you apologize for it. And rather than accepting you back in the fold and saying you apologized, they come up with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. People are literally waking up each day asking themselves, How can I be offended today? And so there is no resolve. There is no goal in mind for quote-unquote canceling someone. And so I just wanted to put that out there as the fact that I do think it's different when you actually have a goal in mind. And the goal for the Christian boycotts of the 90s, if you will, was to persuade these organizations to drop their liberal policies or to see their air of the air of their ways simply by the fact that the there's a major marketing block that disagrees with these liberal stands. And so I do think it's different. I don't think it's cancel culture as we understand it today. And I just felt like that clarification was needed. So if you want to hear a good discussion on Christian cringe, take advantage of the link on my website to the fantastical truth podcast by Laura Haven and enjoy that discussion. Finally, before we dig into our main segment of the day, I just want to share with you the trailer for the documentary. I lived on Parker Avenue. Now this trailer is for the documentary that inspired the full length film. The story goes that Kirk Cameron saw this documentary and contacted the Kendrick brothers and said, I think this needs to be made into a feature. And according to an interview that I watched yesterday, the story was that the Kendrick brothers originally said, well, this looks interesting. Go ahead and make the movie. But as they began to contemplate the implications, they decided 
that they were going to help Kirk make this movie, and it became the newest Kendrick Brothers movie. So here's a trailer for I Lived on Parker Avenue. Tomorrow, I'm going to hop on a train, and I will meet my birth parents for the first time. This has been 19 years in the making. I'm extremely nervous. I want to see what he looks like in person, his voice, his smile, my hug. I've been waiting. kind of wondered, you know, does he hate us? Yeah, I think this caused a lot of depression from time to time. The reality is... David was seconds, literally, for not being here. It's kind of a bittersweet because I wanted him. We're going to all fill in this missing piece of the puzzle that has been in all three of our lives. It's going to be an overwhelming experience. I'm nervous, but I'm really excited. documentary which i actually watched after the film was very powerful and very moving and i would encourage you to follow the youtube link on my blog and take a look at this documentary because it will move you and it will just make your day to see how god works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform one of the most striking things about this story is the fact that this girl was on her way to have an abortion. She was literally laying on the table. The doctor comes in to do the abortion. She says, I can't do this. And she gets up and walks out because she heard this voice in her spirit say, there's still time. Get up. And that just gives me the shivers in the best way. She also mentioned how the protesters outside the clinic said, your baby has 10 fingers and 10 toes and you're going to kill it. So I think it's a real testament to the fact that workers do make a difference. And so if that is something that you have done or contemplated doing, then it's important to know that you can make a difference. The other thing I wanted to mention about the documentary is the fact that at the end of the documentary, they gave the birth mother this book of letters from a bunch of family and friends of David telling his mother how grateful they were that they had the opportunity to get to know David because she gave him life. And I thought that was so good and it really will inspire you to want to watch this movie and to want to share this story with others. 
I know I talk a lot about the pro-life movement. I know that I'm passionate about it. And I know for some people, they're like, quit beating a dead horse. I've literally had a friend tell me that. But because the issue of life is a matter of life and death, literally, I will never stop beating this horse. Because we need to stand for life at every opportunity. The Proverbs tells us to plead the cause of the poor and needy. And it is on us, the church of God, to do just that. It can be easy to become overwhelmed and to not really know how to start, but I think the biggest thing we can do is to love people to show them the love of God and to show them that God loves them and that God loves their child. And also that there are options. I was watching an interview with the real David and his mom, and she made a startling statement. She said, there are two adoptions for every 100 abortions. And that just startled me because I knew that we needed to do a better job with adoption, but that is a staggering number. The reality is that adoption is a very hard and arduous process. In part, that is important. You want to make sure that people are adopted by competent parents. But I can't help but wonder if you flipped the script and you made it easier to adopt and harder to abort, if we would see a blessed change in this culture. Because the reality is there are a lot of people waiting to adopt. And I know that there are many people that say, well, just adopt from foster care. And I think that's a great thing to do, adopting from foster care. But I think it's important to remember that adopting from foster care is not that simple because in order to adopt from foster care, the baby or the child that you're fostering has to have complete parental rights taken away or voluntarily given up. And that is not always the case. I grew up with a family that fostered uh, children and they had multiple times I'm fairly certain where they tried to adopt a child from foster care and were unable to do so because of parental rights issues. So you can't just say that as a blanket statement. I really appreciate this story because it shows a real person with a real eventuality. I think one of the problems in both the pro-life and the pro-choice movement is that we depersonalize the babies that we're talking about. So being able to share a true story like this shows us the need that we have to be involved, to love others, and to promote healthy options. Like, I fully acknowledge that people are getting pregnant today that are not able to be parents. 
But that's where adoption comes in. There are so many people who are waiting for children. And if we would just realize that, then this world could be a better place. I've always found it very interesting that we have so many fertility clinics in the U.S. when we are killing so many babies every day. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I trust that as we contemplate these issues that we will seek God for answers and that we will be champions of life going forward. Now we have arrived at our main segment in which I will share with you my review of the movie Life Mark. As I said, it is based on a true story and the names are changed for the purposes of the movie, but many of the elements of the story come directly from the documentary that I previously referenced. I want to share with you our quote of the day. which is from Melissa Cates, the birth mother in this movie. She says, I don't think he'd want to talk to me. He probably hates me for what I did. And I think this is an important thing to contemplate because I think there's probably a lot of mothers out there who've given their child up for adoption um, who may feel the same way. But I think it's far better to give your child up for adoption than to kill them from abortion. Because I'm sure that as much as she thought about her adopted child every day, there are many post-abortive women who can't get the memory of that out of their minds. As a matter of fact, I've heard testimony that some people get involved with the pro-abortion movement for the express purpose of justifying their own actions in this area. And that is a very sad reality that people deal with. But I, I think it was it's important to remember that when we deal with this issue, we're not just talking about saving the babies, we're also talking about affirming the women and encouraging them that they actually are heroes for making the decision to choose life for their children. As I said, the documentary in particular, but the movie as well, showed how so many people were profoundly impacted by her decision to keep her child. And now, as we dig in a little bit about the cast, we have Rafael Ruggiero as David Colton, Kirk Cameron as Jimmy Colton, Rebecca Rogers Nelson as Susan Colton, Don Long as Melissa Cates, Alex Kendrick as, as Sean Cates, Marissa Hampton as young Melissa, Lowry Brown as Brian, Ian Tucker as young Brian, Stephanie Parker as Azure, Isabel Alleyman as Reese, Ezra Duvall as Presley, Leah Tompkins as Courtney. And so we have a really good cast for this film, and I, I really appreciated the performances. I thought they were very well done. Nobody seemed cardboard in this whole film, which was uh, exciting. And um, I really liked the character of Nate, and I thought it added to the film. He was actually a composite character um, added for humor, and I think just to, to add a more personal touch, 
But really the documentary came about because a filmmaker saw David give a speech where he talked about his adoption. And so what you see in this film is really kind of a composite of all the life events that he went through. And you see it come together in this really well-told story. Um, one of the challenges of this movie is that it takes place over an almost 20-year time period. So there was a lot of flashing back and flashing forward, which got confusing at times. Um, I I kind of chuckled at it because it was like Kirk Cameron flashing back 20 years and then flashing forward 20 years. And I almost think that his real self was more like the 20 years younger self because he's one of these actors that doesn't age that much. He's a little bit gray now, but he's not as gray as he had to be in the movie playing an older version of the father. So that was kind of an interesting thing. And I have more to say regarding this movie, but before I do that, I want to take some time to play the trailer for the movie Life Mark. Are you okay with people knowing that you're adopted? Yes. Mostly. Not really. Do you remember asking to see that when you were about eight years old? How old were they? I think she was 18, and he was 17. I honestly had no idea that this many people were wanting to adopt. Imagine how scared she must have been. She was pregnant when she graduated, and then the decision to place you for adoption. God, if you're there, please protect me and watch over him. There's a birth mother on the line with a question for you. It must have been the hardest decision of her entire life. Hello? But she loved you, and I'm so glad that she made the choice that she did. I've always wondered if my biological parents think about me. Today's David's 18th birthday. You want to talk to him? I don't think he'd want to talk to me. There's only one way to find out. Yes, maybe I didn't want to feel different. You didn't want to be an idiot. I didn't want to be different. Different. Okay, good. That's a lot better. God gave you to me and Mom as a gift. And you will always be our son. Is that your birth mom? She wants to meet. Really? Yeah. Hey, what's up, Emily? How's it going? That's Elizabeth. And Nate was played by Justin Sterner, by the way. But that's just to round out the cast that was very well done. I really liked this movie. It grabbed you from the get-go. Um, we start out with a young man who is a wrestler, and he's very good at wrestling. And he is on his way to the championships. And then he ends up with a disorder that requires him to have surgery. Now, this is a part of the film that wasn't very well developed. And I questioned at first whether this was part of the story, but I thought it was interesting. In one interview, the real David said that 
Rodrigo had the scar in the back of his head, much like himself. So I think there was some implication that some sort of surgery or some sort of injury was actually true to life. But anyway, after this happens, he gets contacted by the lawyers who set up the adoption that said that his birth mom had updated her information. And she updated her information because she wanted to make sure that if he wanted to find her, which he was legally able to do, he wouldn't have the roadblock of not knowing her contact information. So she updated it and asked for an update from them, and the movie shows him contemplating it. At first, he's really frustrated with losing out on wrestling, so it's the last thing from his mind. But eventually he does reach out to her, writes her a letter, asks her if she's on Facebook, and they begin corresponding. Now, in this film... It makes it appear like it's a three or four month period that they're corresponding. In the interview that I watched, it sounds like it was more like a year or more that they corresponded before they made the decision to meet. And Nate, who stands in for the documentary makers, decides to make a documentary about his friend and his journey to see his birth mother. He takes the train, his parents take the car, and they go and they meet first the birth mom and her husband and his full-blooded sister, which he finds out at the last minute that he has a full-blooded sister, and then later they go and meet his father. And so it was really exciting to see this story unfold you see, first of all, a real candid and raw look at what happens uh, with struggles in having children. His mother's first two children die at a very young age, one within hours and one within years of a birth defect, which actually in real life causes her first husband to leave her. But in the movie, they just had it happen to the original couple, and they're just very much struggling with their grief and trying to process it while at the same time wanting to have a family. And in the movie, the husband decides to resubmit their application for adoption. They get called because David's mother is looking through birth mothers and she asks her a seemingly innocuous question about how she fishes and decides that she is the one for her baby. And the reason behind the question is because she wants her to be down to earth. And so then throughout the film, you see them uh, going back in time and getting the call that they had a baby and then watching him grow up from stage to stage through this 18, 19-year-old process. Uh, They always told him he was adopted, which I think is advisable. I don't think it's a good thing for a child to find out when they're 18, 19 years old. Oh, by the way, you're adopted. That's the story that was told in October Baby, and it does add some drama, but I don't think it's good for the child. I think it's good for the child to hear, we chose you, we love you, and we want you all their life. And that was the reality for David. He always knew he was adopted. He always knew that he was loved. When the time came for him to seek out his biological family, his parents 
were very supportive. And in the documentary, it shows his grandparents even going to visit the real parents and to say thank you for the gift that you've given. And I think this is so important. I think it's not just about getting the baby and saving them from abortion, but to be genuinely thankful to the birth mother for making this decision so that you could have your child and then making them aware of how thankful you are. I think that goes a long way in cultivating the culture of life in our society. And I hope that people take that to heart as they watch this film. And I've heard stories that people are even now being persuaded to consider adoption. And I love that. I think it's so important that if we want to be a life-affirming society, one of the ways that we can do that and one of the things that we need to do is to be adoption champions. So we see throughout this movie uh, that we have him contemplating whether to go on this trip and then he brings his friend Nate to chronicle everything and you know he's he's nervous he's not sure what it's going to hold and of course when his birth mom drops the bomb on him that he actually has a full-blooded biological sister that's a whole nother wave of emotions where he's like I thought I was alone in the world but actually I have a sibling and I'm excited about it and it shows him actually playing with her and one of the interesting things about the documentary is it actually shows the mother talking about his visit and how depressed his sister was when he left. So it's just really interesting how God brought all that together. The strength of this film, I think, is just in the fact that it's a true story. You know, sometimes when you're watching a fictional story, a fictional depiction of something or other you will look at it and you'll see the end and you'll say well this was buttoned up well uh, because the directors didn't want to leave you on a downer and so they made sure that it ended well but this is actually a true story that did end well and so I thought that lent itself to the strength of the story on the flip side I think the weakness of the movie if there is one is that there was only surface discussions of faith. Now, I understand that a lot of times people will say that Christian movies get too preachy, and so I understand that part of the reason they did this the way they did it was to make sure that that didn't happen. But I also think that when we talk about the pro-life issue, And when we address it head on, we need to be willing to say, why do we believe in the pro-life issue? And so having a verse like, you knit me together in my mother's womb, and I am fearfully and wonderfully made in that my soul knows right well, would have been a really good addition. I think it was pretty clear, especially in interviews that I watched, um, that his birth mother and his adoptive family are believers but it could have been brought forth more in the film. And so I'm really grateful uh, that this movie was made, but that is just something that I've thought of. So what's the biggest lesson 
in this movie. I think the biggest lesson in this movie is that you never know what people are going through. For David's parents, it was a matter of trusting God and going through the grief of repeatedly finding out that they could not have the children that they wanted. And on the flip side, for David's biological parents, it was them wrestling with the issue that they weren't ready to become parents. So how do you deal with that? And to see both of these storylines converge in a way that was positive for each of them was an exciting thing. And so I think that one of the things that I often talk about on this podcast is that we don't live life in a bubble, that the decisions that we make do affect other people. And I think that if nothing else, if you get nothing else from this movie, I think realizing that the decisions that you make affect other people is a big one. And I really hope that people will watch this movie and share it. And I I think it will make people think. I heard in the video that I watched that it was very difficult for the young actress playing David's mother as a teen to get through the scene where she almost aborted her child. And that after the scene happened that uh, she and the actress playing the mother, I believe, um, grown up, and then the real mother all went back to the dressing room and prayed and had a wonderful time of fellowship after that emotional time. And so I think it's important for us to realize uh, the emotional toll that this decision has on people, even as we compassionately articulate the truth. Because this is a situation that, although it's hard for me to believe this, she never told her family that she was even pregnant for David. So they didn't find out about David until David came back into the picture at 18, 19 years old. So this is an important thing for us to realize. We need to be in a situation where people are willing to talk about their needs and that they know that they will be compassionately met. And that's one of the struggles that we deal with today because we have people like Elizabeth Warren who are trying to introduce legislation to kill crisis pregnancy centers. I've always found it ironic that they say that pro-lifers don't want to do anything to help women and yet they want to close down the very way that many pro-lifers work to help women. But it's incumbent upon us to continue to be the light and the love in this situation. I want to talk about my favorite part of this movie. I think my favorite part is the reunion scene itself when she walks out of the house, the birth mom, and just hugs David and gets a chance to hug his parents. And one of the things that his parents and David uh, both say is thank you. And his parents can't stop saying I love you because they know what she sacrificed to give up this baby. And uh, they are so grateful to have him as their child. 
And then I think my least favorite part of the movie is the fact that it would have been nice, as I said, to have more of the Christian element in the film. But I really appreciated the way this was done, and I, I kind of do understand why they took the tone that they did, and I hope that it will drive people to explore some of the topics that are talked about in a Christian context in this film. Like, David's father says at one point, you were given as a gift to your mom and I, and you will always be my son. And I think that's such a wonderful picture because God himself adopts us today as sons and daughters of God. Um, he says, to them who believe, to them he gives the power to become the sons of God. So that is just very exciting. The sequence where she's contemplating abortion just because you're faced with the reality that this could have happened. You can't skirt it because it's a true story. And this is something that I hope people will understand is this is not overly dramatic. This is what actually happens. And so I think that it was important to be in there, but it was really difficult to watch. I, I wept several times uh, throughout this movie and what, what more can I say? It was very well done and it hits hard. It really does. Um, they go skydiving while they're visiting um, David and his birth mother. And at first I thought, well, maybe that's an additive to the story, but that as well was something that actually happened. If you watch the documentary, please watch through the credits because they actually show video footage of them skydiving. And um, so overall, I just really think this is a solid film. I give it a four out of five. As I said, there's very little negative about it. Um, and it deals with the hard issues related to this movie in a very tasteful way, but it is still is very adult in certain ways. So make sure that if you watch with your children, that you're having discussions I think it's important for us to have discussions about what we consume media-wise, no matter what. But especially with something like this film, um, please make sure that you are having those discussions with your children. Uh, but overall, a very uh, well-done movie. And again, I just, I just really like it. And the fact that my least favorite scene was not because it was a badly done scene, but just because it was a harsh reminder of the reality of the situation. Uh, and so that bodes well for the film. So I give this film a four out of five, and I hope that everyone will get out and see it. As of this recording, it is still in theaters. So please make sure you support it. It was initially supposed to be in for one week, and Fathom Events said that they would extend it if it was doing well and they have extended it, 
and I think it is still in theaters as I am recording, so please go out and give it your support. It reminds me of The Chosen. They did a special Christmas episode, and it was in theaters, and they had a week planned, and I think they did three or four weeks because it was so successful. So we need to make sure that we support quality cinema and that we show um, Hollywood that we want to see films like this. Very interesting fact about this movie is, first of all, I want to refer back to the fact that this was not directed by the Kendrick brothers. This is actually a pretty exciting um, story about why they chose to not direct it. They actually had a protege that they were mentoring that they said, now is your time to direct a film. So they had him direct it. Alex Kendrick was in it. But as I said, it's the first Kendrick's Brothers movie that they did not direct. The other thing I wanted to bring out about this film is that one of the reasons for the limited release through Fathom Events is actually because they had other distributing partners that they had worked with in the past on their other films who refused to touch this project because of its pro-life message. And so I think it's almost doubly important in some ways to support them and to show them that we don't need their outside intervention. We can still have a successful film. We can still have a life-changing film. And why is it life-changing? Because the message of life is a message from God. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. It's the thief Satan who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we would do well to remember that. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this review and I hope that it has persuaded you to uh, take some time to watch this movie and to be encouraged by it. I appreciate everyone who listens and I hope that you will go and watch this movie and share it with your family and purpose to ask God how he would have you to advocate for life. Before we go today, I want to share with you another clip from the Speaking for Him scrapbook. Again, this was a time when my friend Denise Dykstra came into the studio to discuss a blog post that I had read from her blog, Four Boys Coffee, Please. So the thing that really um, caught my attention was the first blog post I read of yours, uh, which was shortly after um, we connected on Facebook, which was when you made the decision to leave your position at the library, which for the record, I from the time I was a teenager, I wanted to get a job at a bookstore, and then I kind of wanted to get a job at a library because it was kind of like working at a bookstore, except I wouldn't spend my whole paycheck on books. <laughs> so that would that would have been one of my dream jobs uh, to work at a library. But anyway, so you were working at the library, and you you made um, the decision to come home and be with your boys, which I think is awesome. But can you elaborate a little bit on how that came about? Well, first of all, if you have a local library, go hug your librarian, not, like, be nice. <laughs> Bring them coffee. You can win many awards. Librarian work is, um, it is very, it's very difficult. It's awesome, but it is difficult. And uh, just really thank your librarians for everything they do for you. But, uh, yeah, I worked in a library for seven years uh, as a librarian assistant, and, um, 
it was my, when I started there, I didn't, we didn't know each other, but Alicia was, is the librarian there and we became best friends. Our families vacation together. We're talking like this, this is close knit. This is a small community. This job is literally around the corner from my house. It is across the street from our school. And uh, I started there when Abe was in preschool and, um, I mean, it was just, it was just every part of, of our lives and the job itself was great, but I was looking around at all the things that I was missing with my kids and it was just, it was breaking my heart. I, life is made up of so many little moments. You know, you, you think that it's all these big moments, you know, what are the big moments of your life? But a big life is made out of little moments. And I was missing so much of that. I was coming home just exhausted. I wasn't, I was not present in the moment with them. And it was, it was so much. It was just, it was heavy on me. And, and I didn't realize it. I have to back up a little bit more. I did this scary thing. I, um, read this blog post is a devotional by Allie Worthington. And she said, pray for God to open doors and open doors for you or close doors for you. I'm messing that up, but that is legit what it was. But I was praying, dear God, please open the doors that you want open to me and close the doors that need to be closed. And God, give me wisdom to know the difference because how do you know? Like, how do you not know that? Oh, wait, I'm supposed to fight for this or I'm supposed to walk through this. And um, so I started praying for that and I just really felt God's voice saying, you have to leave the library. And I went, I could never do that. And, um, but I, I did. I, there was one night where it was just, it was so heavy on me because I, I didn't want to say it out loud. And I looked at my husband and I said, I, I really, I really think I need to leave the library. I need to quit. And he said, there's no way. And, Mm -hmm. um, I said, no, I really, I really do, but I need this to be your decision because I mean, basically you're saying, Hey, I love you. You want to support me from now on for everything, which he's doing anyway. But, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were in total agreement on that. And he said, and he thought about it because it was such a shock. And, uh, he's like, yeah, let, let's do that. Let's do that. And so in the end of January, I left that job. I say I resigned. I feel like that sounds very professional. I resigned. <laughs> and, uh, my husband's like, oh, she quit that job. And, um, but my boys say I retired because I'm not an old woman. I happen to get glasses because my eyes Eyes were bothering me with my contacts, and my friend Naomi gets me knitting. So I have glasses. <laughs> I'm knitting. I'm drinking my coffee. It was a whole thing. So this was actually the first of several appearances by Denise, and I really appreciate what she has brought to the podcast. And by the way, she does have very delicious cookies, which is another aspect of her that, if you know her, you love about her. So Denise, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for showing us uh, what it means to be willing to walk away from something you love to do the thing that God calls you to do. I think that's an important aspect of the Christian life that we don't often talk about. So I was grateful that Denise was able to be candid with us about that. She appeared on some book club episodes and she appeared on episodes we did I think later that year for the Advent season. And so it was just really a pleasure to have her in the studio. 
I often wish that I could have her back on the show. Um, maybe because of Zoom technology and the like, that will happen. But again, I'm grateful to you, Denise, for your friendship and for the opportunity to have you on the show. So we will continue to have these highlights from the show as we count down to our 10th anniversary, which is recording on Monday night, the 10th of October. So you'll want to be ready for that to release on Wednesday, the 12th. And if you have any input on the show, please contact us. You can even now leave a voicemail on the blog at speakingforhim.blogspot.com and just let us know what the Speaking For Him podcast has meant to you through the years. I'm excited to be with you again next week, but until then, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking For Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 